1 Peter 4. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For those, for you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regards to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind, so that you may pray. Well, it's so good to see so many of you again this morning. It's my privilege to study the Bible with you. I invite you, if you have your Bibles, to uh, turn to the verses that Joe read for us in 1 Peter chapter 4. This morning, we continue our series of studies of Peter's first letter. This series is about hope. Hope when you're struggling. Hope when you're living. Hope for marriages. Hope when you're suffering for doing good. Hope when you're living for God. Hope. It's a great word, and this is a great letter for us to study. Last week, I heard a few comments after Pastor Ken's message that I thought were very encouraging. One of the comments I heard was simply, I learned something today. And I think that that's a great compliment. Because part of what we do when Pastor Ken, myself, or anyone else stands up here and speaks is that we seek to teach and to educate. We want to discover truth together. Followers of Jesus or disciples of Jesus are, at their core, learners. Another comment I heard was, I'm surprised at how much of the Bible I just skip over when I read. And, uh, and I appreciate the honesty of that. And this person was referring to part of that difficult passage that Pastor Ken spoke about. And, and I relate to that, and maybe you do as well. We read, sometimes especially if we are already familiar with a particular passage, and we read, we read quickly because we've read it before, we know what's coming. And as a result, we don't really stop and think about what the writer is really saying. You see, uh, for these reasons and many more, I think it's very healthy for the church to study whole books of the Bible because it exposes us then ultimately to every passage in the Bible. And sometimes the verses are simple and straightforward. Other times they're more complex and difficult, like last week, and in part, this week. Scott McKnight, professor of religious studies at North Park College in Chicago, Illinois, wrote this about this passage. In my nearly three decades of sitting in Sunday school and listening to sermons, both in a house of worship and in a seminary chapel, I have never heard a sermon on this passage, nor have I ever preached on this passage myself. Great. Neither have I. In these verses and throughout the book, Peter is teaching a suffering church how to comfort one another. And he's offering guidelines for those who are enduring suffering. And they are suffering for their Christian faith. 
And simply point, simply put, his point throughout is that suffering, in essence, is good for the Christian life. Now, this is probably a new way of thinking for us. And Peter begins these verses by pointing back to what he has just written and then ultimately ahead to the practical application. That little word that starts this verse 1, therefore, makes that connection. He writes, therefore, since Christ suffered in his body. So Peter is referring back to what he has just been writing about Jesus starting in verse 18 of chapter 3, the passage that Pastor Ken studied last week with us. And verse 18 begins, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. In short, he suffered a cruel, painful death on the cross. And it's this suffering that ultimately helps purge one's life of sin. As Peter writes these opening words of chapter 4, he's probably still thinking about the Christ's or the Christian's identification with Jesus and baptism, because those also were some of the comments that he had made uh, later on in, uh, in verse 21. And uh, this water, he says, symbolizes baptism. And so, uh, baptism, again, as just as a reminder, is a picture of how a believer, through faith, is united with Jesus and his death. The death that Jesus died to sin becomes our death to sin. And baptism pictures this spiritual process. At TCC, we practice adult believer baptism by immersion. And that is when someone is of an age, when they can understand what it means to follow Jesus and they want to commit their life to him, it indicates that they want to go public with this truth In this context, we bring in a hot tub, which we haven't done for a while, but we're anxiously waiting our new building that will have a tank built right into the platform of the, uh, of the, uh, or built right into the platform. And, and then as they enter into those waters that are there, and after hearing their story of faith and repentance, we put them down in and under the water and then bring them back up out of the water, at least most of the time. Um, but this form of baptism best symbolizes this spiritual process. Because if you've been baptized, you can go back to that day, that moment, and you remember this. And if you haven't been baptized, but you're a follower of Jesus, again, I want to just encourage you, you need to think about this. Because it's an important uh, step of obedience in following Jesus. But when we stand in the water... In essence, as our old selves, we go down into the water, dying to our old self. We're buried under the water, and then we are raised to new life in Jesus. And because we have died to sin, we are, in essence, to use Peter's words here in these verses, done with sin. And now, Peter is saying... Because Jesus suffered and died, you should, he says, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. You see, when a person who has crossed the line of faith and they've placed their hope and trust in Jesus is tempted to live as though he were still in his sins, he should remember his conversion, should remember the salvation that was ultimately pictured in his baptism and then live in view of that. And that's why Peter writes in verse 2, as a result, 
He does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. That's quite a statement if you stop and think about that one verse alone for a moment. It describes very clearly a new way of thinking. Peter is saying because Jesus suffered and died to sin, and as believers in Jesus we identify with that, it changes the way we think about life. So in so many respects, becoming a Christian is a mind-altering experience. Before we knew Jesus, we were living for evil human desires. That's what this verse says. But now we want to follow the example of Jesus and do the Father's will. That's it. That becomes our purpose in life. That becomes our number one priority is that we want to do the Father's will. Even if, in this context, we have to suffer as a result. You see, this is a new way of thinking. Previously, we only thought of ourselves, right? Self was Lord and Master. But now, he says, that's changed. Now we live to do the Father's will. The Apostle Paul wrote to the saints in Rome, Romans 12, verse 1 and 2, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be living and let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person, get this, by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. And this is what Paul wrote to the Thessalonians in his first letter, chapter 4 and verse 3. God's will is for you to be holy. So stay away from all sexual sin. Then each of you will control his own body and live in holiness and honor not in lustful passion like the pagans do, or, or like the pagans who do not know God and his ways. You see, this is a new way of thinking, and it's a change ultimately in our attitude, where Jesus is Lord, and our sole desire becomes to do his will. And as a result of this new way of thinking, it naturally produces a new way of acting. Peter goes on in verse 3 to remind these early Christians of their past and specifically the activities that they used to engage in, past tense. As pagans, they did certain things. But because they have a new way to think about life, no longer pursuing human evil desires, but now wanting to do the will of the Father, they have a new way of acting. You see, they used to think of only themselves, and now they want to do the Father's will. And so by definition, there are certain things they no longer do. Now, Peter reminding them of these behaviors wasn't to sort of dredge up their past and sort of wallow in it and rub it in their faces, but he does say, listen, you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. 
In other words, the memory of their sinful past was to serve as an obstacle against any tendency that they might have to relapse into this kind of living. He says, in essence, yeah, you know what? You used to do these things. And you've wasted enough time doing these sins. You've sinned more than enough. But now, listen, it's time to get on with a life of obedience. Now, Peter's list is pretty grim. Maybe you grimaced a little bit when Joe read it for us. Debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, detestable idolatry. And I think that last one just sort of sums it up. He was just writing all of these things out as they came to him through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he just wrote, you know what, just, it's just idolatry. You see, these activities marked their past. But now they no longer, using Peter's words, plunge into the same flood of dissipation. Simply meaning that it was all about pleasure seeking. That that was their sole purpose in life. And the people that they used to do these things with, the people who still do these things, they now look at their new behavior and go, that's strange. That's weird. And what do they do? He says, they heap abuse on you. You see, when you and I are prepared to live according to God's will, to pursue a holy and obedient life, then we must also be prepared to thought of, well, weird, a little strange. And when we do, people may make fun of the integrity and purity of our lives. And that's not fun. And that can be hurtful. And that can be painful. And we can suffer. But here's the deal. When this kind of hardship comes... Are we going to stand for what we know to be true? Or will we be tempted to go back to our old way of life? And in so many ways, what this really comes down to is a worship issue. What do I worship? Do I worship God and seek to live according to his will? That's one choice. Or... Do I worship myself and my pleasure and my happiness? You see, suffering must never become an opportunity to, or an incentive in some ways to worship false gods or idols and embrace sin. So it's very important for us to identify the idols in our lives. The problem, as soon as I use that word, probably most of us then immediately think of an idol as a, as a statue of wood or stone or some piece of metal that's worshipped by pagan people. But the concept of an idol is much broader and far more personal than that. An idol is this. It's anything apart from God that we depend on to be happy, fulfilled, or secure. Happy, fulfilled, or secure. You see, in biblical terms, it is something other than God that we then set our heart on. It becomes our sole motivation. It masters and rules us, or something that we even trust, or fear, or serve. In short, 
It is something that we love and pursue in place of God. So, should we go back over that dark list and see if we can't identify with some potential idols? Not necessarily the, the actual behavior, but the idols that maybe we've set up that have consumed our thinking. He uses the word debauchery. In some translations, it's sensuality. And so the question we can ask ourselves is, where do we lack restraint? Is it food? Is it alcohol? Is it sex? Is it money? Is it gossip? Where do we lack restraint? Lust, he uses the word, or passion in some translations. What kind of evil desires dominate us that are strongholds? Drunkenness. I mean, that's pretty obvious. We know what that is. Where are we prone to addiction? Or orgies. What sexual sins tempt you? Does this make us a little uncomfortable? Makes me uncomfortable. Carousing, or in some translations, drinking parties. What social sins tempt us? And then this detestable idolatry that I said. What, what things are we just fond of that, that really get our attention? Maybe a really hard question to ask ourselves is, what is the thing that we think about the most? You see, an idol can be a good thing that has become an ultimate thing. It can be a job that becomes our sole focus in life, right? It could be a degree where nothing else matters but just the pursuit of that, and you put everything else aside. And we know what our idols are when they're challenged, when they're taken away, or we don't get something that we want. And we could go into a whole other study about this and read some great verses in James when he says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Isn't it the desires that you have, right? So it's the things that you want that maybe you can't have, and suddenly frustration and anger and conflict and all of those things end up being a result. But I kind of get sidetracked there a little bit. But just let me remind you that If we need anything, if we need anything apart from God, anything that we depend on to be happy, fulfilled, or secure, then we probably have identified an idol. And when we do, we have a choice. We can destroy those false gods by replacing them ultimately with the worship of Jesus. We can reorientate our thinking and make Jesus Lord. And when we do, then we hope and pray that our actions follow by the grace of God. So maybe some of these activities marked our past, and now they are just that, a thing of the past. But we always have to be on our guard to not get sucked into feeling sorry for ourselves and then using our suffering as an excuse to return to that old way of life. You see, suffering is never a blank check to sin. What do I mean by that? Well, so I get dumped. And I use it as an excuse to sleep around. Or I lose my job and I use it to justify stealing. Or I get hurt. I use it to rationalize getting drunk. And so, you see what's happened here? At one time, we changed the way that we thought about life. And we made Jesus Lord. His will was the only thing that mattered. And this often is made public at baptism, as I said earlier. And I was at a baptism last Sunday night. 
And person after person, young person who had come out of, some who had come out of unbelievable pasts, stood and said, I now am making this public declaration to follow Jesus for the rest of my life. What a statement. It's a declaration. And for all of them, his will now is the only thing that matters. And that changes the way we act. But you know what happens, right? Sometimes our so-called friends come along. The ones that maybe we used to do some of these things with. And they're surprised that we've changed. And so they mock and tease us. Things get a little tough. Then maybe we're tempted to fall back into the old way. And they have a smooth way of inviting us in, right? Hey, Things are tough for you right now. Come out with us tonight and have a good time. You deserve it. Take a load off your mind. You deserve to be happy. And so it starts or ends. Because at this point, we have a decision to make. Do we go back to that old way of life? Or do we return to Jesus and follow him? You see, that will always be the challenge. That will always be the decision you and I have to make virtually every day. Do I offer myself to God in worship of Him? Or will I get distracted by worshiping my idols? And so Peter has just written about their past and their present. And then lastly, he talks about their future. And I think he suggests a new way of facing the future. And specifically here in verse 5, he's referring to the pagans who now were making fun of the obedient follower of Jesus. And Peter says, But they will have to give an account for him, to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Peter warns that these abusers will have to answer to God for their behavior. See the bottom line? It's going to be payday one day. And the writer of Hebrews puts it this way, in chapter 4 and verse 3, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. They're sobering words. Because... He's saying, in essence, that no one can escape this ultimate final responsibility in accounting to God for the words and deeds of their earthly lives. And those who do not receive Jesus as Savior will face Him as their judge. That's the message of the gospel. And that is why the gospel, he says here, it was preached even to some who had already died. Christians who had died, they got this. That Jesus died for my sins and for yours. But if we don't receive him as Savior, as Lord, then, you know, that's a scary place to be. You're on your own. And this life that we live here, this current life, it is only a prelude to a greater and endless world beyond. As I wrestled with with these verses and tried to think of how to put them in some kind of a context. I struggled with whether or not to share what I'm about to share. But I just, 
the more I thought about it and the more as I looked at these verses, the more that I saw how it paralleled my own life. And so I don't share this to, to glory in anything. And so I want you just to receive it as it is, my personal journey. Some of you have heard bits and pieces of this, but I want to try to just give you a really quick sort of chronological testimony in five minutes or less. I grew up in a Christian home, much like some of the children here, attended church regularly. At 13, in 1980, you can do the math, I gave my life to Jesus. The following year, I was baptized. I was in junior high at the time, and as such, I just did normal, stupid things that junior high boys did. Jesus was important to me, and I did honestly seek to honor him in everything. And then I went into high school. I'd say that I more or less kind of went undercover as a Christian. My desire to be accepted, which was an idol I now see, by the in crowd caused me to start drinking just so that I could hang out and attend parties with them. And as a result, as probably some of you are painfully well aware, alcohol makes you do stupid stuff. I graduated in 1985. The following fall, I started to attend the University of Alberta and Faculty of Engineering. Um, most weeks, Friday, right after the last class, um, made a beeline with some of my engineering buddies to rat. Anybody know what that is? Room at the top. The bar at the, um, I think it's like the top floor of the, one of the, the student union buildings there. Anyways. Those next two years were pretty bleak. And I, in essence, had sort of two groups of friends. And my friends at university and school that I would spend Friday evenings with. And then I had some church friends that I still had and I kind of was, was connected to in one way or another. But it was a complete double life that I was living. I also was playing a lot of soccer at the time. And I remember one particular trip in May of 1987, the long weekend, and as I was thinking about this, I went, that is 25 years ago. That's a long time. But the team I, left, I, I played with left for a tournament on Friday afternoon. And quite honestly, as you can imagine, soccer really was secondary. It was an excuse to party. And from the time we got on the bus Friday afternoon, um, until the time we started to return home on Monday was mostly just one big long party. But I vividly remember on the way home, leaning against the window of the bus, feeling awful as you can imagine, literally watching each of those lines on the, on the highway go by and just God was just killing me. And I realized that I was at a crossroads. And he painted it that clear for me. You're at a crossroads, Norb. You have a decision to make. You can continue on the path that you're on, which will ultimately lead to your destruction. Or you can choose life. It was very unsettling. And just a few weeks later, at a Sunday evening service at a Pentecostal church that I was occasionally attending, 
I cannot remember one bit of what the message or what the focus of it was, but I publicly rededicated my life to Jesus. And it was dramatic. And I started on a new pathway. I remember going home. I had a little secret stash of the alcohol that I kept and poured every bottle that I had out. I also knew that I had to stop hanging around with some of the guys that I was spending time with. I started to attend a different church. And that fall, 1987, I sensed for the first time that God was reorientating my life and my priorities. And in the fall of 1988, God clearly called me into ministry. And so in December of that year, I finished university and immediately in January started seminary right here at Taylor. Three years later, I graduated with a Master of Divinity degree. I moved to Calgary in January of 1982 as an associate pastor there. July of 1983, I met Tina. We were were married in September of 1994. Last, or then late spring 1995, I have my 10-year high school reunion. And I I don't know what it was that compelled me. I think it's kind of like, well, lots lots can change in 10 years. I wonder what it's all about. I wonder what people are up to. And most of the high school friends that I hung out with, I had completely lost contact with. And Tina and I came up to Edmonton to attend the reunion. And we're standing in this community hall. And uh, the organizing committee had so thankfully taken any pictures that they had from grad night and bloom up into like eight and a half by 11 pictures and posted them all the way around the wall. And Tina and I are standing there and she's kind of looking at a few and she goes, would you be in any of these pictures? I'm like, oh, no, I wouldn't be in any of those pictures. And she's like, no, no, like, and she's pointing like literally behind my shoulder. I could have been standing anywhere in this room. She's like, that's you. And I was on my grad night, I remember, in a hot tub, and just with a great big bottle of whatever it was in my face. It's kind of embarrassing. I always fear that someday somebody's going to get a hold of those pictures because they're probably still floating out there and put them in Facebook and tag me or something. (laughs) But you know, 10 years, you've had time to probably get educated and start a career, maybe start a family, and that had all happened for me, but... It was very interesting when people came up and said, so what are you up to? I'm a pastor. (laughs) And it was total shock in most cases. And it's interesting, even now, since we returned to Edmonton, I'll meet people. Even some of those Christians who knew me 25 years ago when I was living that complete double life, they still can't quite believe it. But I guess I can relate to the Apostle Paul when he wrote to Timothy. I thank Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, or maybe in my case, even though I once a a drunkard and a carouser and a proudful man. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord 
was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. My point is this, that while starting out on a journey at 13 quite strong, I was faced with some critical choices along the way. And initially, or eventually, I simply chose to live for myself. The will of God was the furthest thing from my mind. I had my own little idols, popularity, acceptance, the desire to be loved, and alcohol. I wasted time doing some really dumb stuff, stuff I wish I could erase from my memory. But when I came to that place in 1987, when I gave my life over to Jesus, I even had friends that mocked me. Oh, you're just getting all serious about that Jesus stuff. And I had to find new friends, friends that would encourage me and support me in my journey. And even now, I have to continually be on my guard to watch for little idols that I might set up in my life. Friends, simply put, this passage is a call to be like Jesus, perhaps to suffer like Jesus, but ultimately to worship him and him alone. In Peter's own words from chapter 3 and verse 15, he lays it out for us. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. And I would add, but in your minds, set apart Christ as Lord. Because when we think about him as our Lord and Master, and our desire is to do his will and his will alone, it will change the way we act, the things we do, and the things that we think about. I'm reminded of the time when Joshua was calling the Israelites to obedience and faithfulness. He reminded them of all that God had done for them. And then he said this, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. He's making an ultimatum for them. Either choose to follow God or they'll go ahead and follow your other, other idols. But that is the choice you face. And then he makes that amazing declaration. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Jesus suffered and died for me and for you. 
So choose for yourselves this day whom you will worship and serve. I don't know if this resonates with you. I hope it does for for us. And if this means for you an understanding of what it might mean to make your commitment to follow Jesus and give your life wholeheartedly to Him, do it. Because there's a future that you have to face. And maybe for some today, it's just as simply a day where you can put that stake in the, in the ground like for me in June of 1987 where I said, that's it. I can't go down this path anymore. be happy to pray with any of you, Pastor Kenwood. And so while we're singing, you can come and just sit here. You can come up after. I don't want to embarrass or single anyone out. But pay attention to what it is that you're worshiping.